Welcome to Victory Over Communism with Bill Gertz, the only program willing to pull back the curtain of communism to reveal how China and even America's own brand of Marxism pose real threats to freedom and democracy in America and the world today. Your host and guide to victory over communism is one of the nation's most experienced national security journalists, Bill Gertz who uses unique facts, pinpoint analysis, and exclusive interviews to identify and counter today's destructive communist ideologies. Now, Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Welcome to the program. The VOC podcast is about ideology, communist and Marxist ideology. As I've said before, it's not about people. People are free to believe in whatever they choose in our country. Communism is not just a false ideology, however, it is evil. That is, the ideology has been used since its inception to seize and maintain political power in the name of an achievable greater good, the worker's paradise. Above all, communism and Marxism are built and promoted using lies and deception. As the great Ronald Reagan once said, communists are unrestrained in their quest for power. The only morality they recognize is what will further their cause, meaning they reserve unto themselves the right to commit any crime, to lie, to cheat. The purpose of this podcast is to educate people to these ideologies. Through education, people and governments will recognize that communism and its variants pose an existential threat to our free and open system of governance. And the communists are making inroads into subverting that system in ways most people do not recognize. In the last episode, I discussed in detail the revival of communism in China under Xi Jinping. Keeping with my plan to alternate topics between Chinese communism and American Marxism, this episode focuses on the violent Marxist extremist group Antifa. Black-clad Antifa radicals rose to prominence in the summer of 2020 by instigating the riots, firebombing, and looting of American cities after the death of George Floyd. But a strange thing happened after the election of President Biden in November 2020. Antifa went silent and seemingly disappeared from public view, except for a few places on the West Coast where the group continues its drive for Marxist revolution. Well, Antifa is back. On January 21, seven Antifa extremists were arrested, and unlike their fate in 2020, when most were simply released after arrest by radical state and city prosecutors, authorities in Atlanta, Georgia, charged seven Antifa members with domestic terrorism for setting off the fiery riots in the city. The Antifa riots included the shattering of store and office windows, destroying a police car, and vandalizing walls with graffiti. The trigger for these riots was the death of Manuel Esteban Paez Tehran, a climate activist killed during a violent confrontation with police days before the outbreak of the riots uh, on that weekend. Atlanta Police Chief Darren Shirebaum said Antifa riots were not solely to damage windows of buildings and set a police car on fire. The riots were to continue to do harm, and that did not happen. They were, able, they were shut down. So why now has Antifa returned to the American streets? The return comes two years before the next presidential election, and in my view appears linked to the influence of whether Joe Biden will be reelected or even run 
And Donald Trump, who's announced for re-election, will seek after his one term ended in 2020. Let's take a look at the Antifa ideology that is Marxist at its core and couched in the idea of protecting the country from so-called fascism. Antifa is a contraction of anti-fascism, a common motivating force for communists. In the case of Antifa, the group is a mixture of radical Marxists and radical anarchists. To be clear, the United States faces no threat from fascism in any form. No group or political party is advocating the removal of the capitalist free market democratic system and its replacement with a totalitarian nationalist regime like those in Nazi Germany or Mussolini's Italy. Fascists also tend to believe in the supremacy of one national or ethnic group, contempt for democracy and obedience to a powerful dictator. There are no serious political or other groups advocating for these things. Any fringe right-wing extremist organizations that may declare themselves as neo-Nazi are so small and insignificant that they pose no serious threat of ever gaining political power. Yet the Democratic Party and left-wing radicals within that party and within the administration of President Biden have falsely claimed, curiously in line with the Antifa Marxists, that fascist right-wing extremists are not simply a threat. The administration is calling this a nearly non-existent problem, the most significant domestic threat to the United States today. There's no evidence to support these claims. And like the radicals' alarmism on climate change, there have been no reports from security and law enforcement agencies to back up this idea that somehow Right-wing extremism is, is an existential threat. By contrast, the ideology and physical danger posed by Marxist and anarchist Artifa is real and, grow, and a real and growing danger to the nation and our political system and our freedoms. While hyping a nearly non-existent fascist threat, Antifa has been virtually ignored. The laxity toward the problem was typified by FBI Director Chris Wray, who testified to Congress that Antifa is not even an organization, but merely some type of a spontaneous, decentralized political movement with no real organizational structure. Joe Biden, when he was running for president, also dismissed the idea of Antifa being a threat, saying it was just an idea. Mark Hemingway, a journalist at Real Clear Investigations, was one of the few who challenged the rose-colored view of Antifa. He did an investigative report several years ago, several years ago on the group that remains a, a really insightful look at what Antifa is. His report noted that riots and looting in Philadelphia in 2020 involved a radical left-wing group called Philly Socialists. The group began monitoring police scanners and relaying information in a bid to assist protesters in evading arrest. At one point, the Philly Socialists revealed a clue to their ideological allegiance. Do humanity a favor, they said on Twitter, and learn what Antifa stands for. Throughout the nation in 2020, Antifa emerged fully as a black-masked group of men and women, mostly white and many engaged in gender dysphoria, devoted to destroying the U.S. system and promoting Marxist revolution. Despite its violence, the group remains couched in secrecy, off the radar of most law enforcement and intelligence agencies. No major congressional investigations, studies, or even hearings have been held on the threat from Antifa. No think tanks have devoted resources to studying the danger. 
Dominant liberal media like the New York Times and Washington Post have done almost no in-depth reporting on Antifa. Instead, these news outlets' reports have provided almost apologetic coverage for Antifa, as if the group's ideology and violence were somehow justifiable rage. For most people, Antifa is a mystery wrapped in an enigma wearing a black mask, but it is a mixture of left-wing politics and anarchist nihilism with roots in Marxism-Leninism that go back more than 100 years. The anti-Trump ideology of the political elites is partly to blame for this laxity towards Antifa. Whatever the orange man denounced, the elites and anti-Trumpists supported or embraced. Thus, because Trump denounced Antifa as an organized terror group similar to the Ku Klux Klan, many people decided it must be a good organization. It's that bad. That's the uh, so-called Trump derangement syndrome. Biden, as I mentioned, dismissed the Antifa threat as illusory. And uh, the FBI under Ray has undertaken some investigations of what the Bureau calls violent anarchist extremists. Notice they dropped the Marxist and leftist part of that. And that's code for Antifa. But the Bureau has grown so politicized in recent years that its prevailing culture, once conservative, patriotic, and pro-American, has shifted sharply to the left. And in the FBI, the nation's chief law enforcement and security agency, culture is everything. Field agents are trained to seek promotion. They learn quickly that going easy on threats deemed less politically important by the higher-ups and headquarters, like Antifa or Islamists, is career-enhancing. Likewise, advocating for aggressive policing and intelligence gathering against Antifa and similar dangers will will quickly end any chances for advancement. In the information age, when social media and the Internet have provided vast amounts of data, Antifa remains hidden. Its leaders have not been identified. It has no real Twitter account. Its strategy involves keeping groups small and not disclosing how it operates or who funds it. The small groups are highly secretive and loosely organized. Stanislav Vysotsky a former Antifa activist and author of American Antifa, The Tactics, Culture, and Practice of Militant Anti-Fascism, stated that, quote, for most people, Antifa is a mystery wrapped in an enigma wearing a black mask. Its ideology, however, can be identified. The mixture of Marxism and nihilism comes from decades of radicals, like its main grouping in the Pacific Northwest that features 1960s radicals, including Marxists who carried out bombings under the name the Weather Underground. Other members are anti-racism skateboarders who emerged in the 1980s and newer young radicals that have been radicalized through their college education and the Marxist university system. Significant numbers of Antifa are white, as can be seen in arrest records and other publicly available information. My view is that Antifa is part of a revolutionary Marxist movement to destroy the U.S. capitalist system and replace it with a socialist and ultimately communist system. As with all communist movements, Marxists fully understand in very clear terms terms, the dynamics of political power and how to gain it. In the case of Antifa, the group defines itself in heroic terms as the protector against fascism, without clearly identifying what system it favors. The communists inside Antifa will be able to easily manipulate the anarchists within the group that do not seek the workers' paradise or other socialist utopias 
but are skeptical of state power. Trained Marxists understand how to utilize oppositional forces for their own ends, the destruction of capitalism and its replacement by communism. Mark Bray, a history lecturer at Rutgers and author of the Antifa Handbook, seeks to connect Antifa's activities to obscure left-wing groups like that resisted Hitler, Mussolini, and Spain's Franco. Like the communists of that period, current Antifa members often invoke the Spanish Civil War slogan, No Passaran, This Shall Not Pass. Bray revealed that Antifa is aligned with communists like the self-defense group called the Maoist Red Guards in Austin, Texas. Like the Marxists, Antifa members oppose American historical traditions. This can be seen in, in Portland, Oregon, where riots involve smashing the windows of the Oregon Historical Society and stealing and damaging a quilt made by a black woman women to celebrate America's bicentennial. Statues of Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt that had stood in Portland for more than a century also were destroyed by Antifa. Antifa also is infused with punk rock subcultures and post-60s left-wing extremism. One group of punk rockers known as the Minnesota Baldies in 1987 formed the Anti-Racist Action Network, ARA. That group engaged in direct action confrontation using spray, spray paint, crowbars, and bricks against racists in the punk scene. ARA's anarchist and hard-left sympathy surfaced in 2013 when it was renamed the Torch Network, sometimes known more explicitly as Torch Antifa Network. This is the closest thing to an Antifa organization. According to Torch's website, affiliated groups are autonomous organizing bodies. They may call themselves whatever they want and can organize the best way they see fit. The groups that sign on to Torch do, however, agree to support the organization's five points of unity. These points call for disrupting fascist and far-right activity and not relying on the police or the legal system and opposing all forms of oppression and exploitation. These are key Marxist rhetorical themes. We intend to do the work necessary to build a broad, strong movement of oppressed people centered on the working class against racism, sexism, nativism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, and discrimination against the disabled, the oldest, the youngest, and the most oppressed people, according to Torch. We, they support abortion rights and reproductive freedom. They want a classless free society, and they add, we intend to win. Antifa members have been affiliated with the notorious Weather Underground members Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who were once associates of Barack Obama during his Chicago political rise. Antifa's imagery is red and black, red representing communist and syndicalist sympathies, while black symbolizes a commitment to anarchy. Loosely speaking, anarchists seek to dissolve governments and abolish all use of force compliance, reorganizing society according to principles of mutual cooperation. Portland State University history professor Mark Rodriguez believes Antifa grew out of the 1999 riots at the World Trade Organization meeting in Seattle. That's when a smaller group of black masked protesters operated under cover of the larger protest to carry out violent destruction. The first American group calling itself Antifa actually emerged in Boston in 2002, but it is the Nor Pacific Northwest with its several decades of anarchist uh, scenery 
laid the foundation for left-wing radicalism. There's also an overlap between anarchism and communist ideologies. For the most part, you're looking at an ideology of autonomism, which is bottom-up Marxist organizing rather than top-down Leninist vanguard organizing. This was an ideology that came out of, the, of Italy and Germany in the late 60s, early 70s, says Kyle Schidler, director and senior analyst at the Center for Security Policy. It was influential with the Red Brigades and the Red Army faction, and you still see this in their language. When they talk about autonomous action or setting up an autonomous zone, that's what they're referring to, uh, Schindler said. The lack of a formal hierarchy inside Antifa affinity groups and their model of leaderless resistance may have Marxist and anarchic anarchic ideological origins, but this same phantom cell structure makes it similar to how more commonly understood terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda commonly operate. At protests, Antifa stalwarts carry weapons and coordinate their actions on the ground in order to evade law enforcement and do maximum damage. They communicate in large signal chat rooms and in encrypted peer-to-peer apps. They also use hand signals, they have walkie-talkie devices, and scouts who watch where the police are and provide real-time updates. Antifa even regards the Republican Party as fascism. This is part of their broad view of what fascism is. And they also see law enforcement as illegitimate, so that's one of their main targets. Its opponents do not have rights to speak and must be confronted and shut down. The Antifa Handbook has an entire chapter offering up a series of defenses for no-platforming Antifa opponents. The group's ideology is militant and appears to follow Lenin's precept that a small band of revolutionaries can seize power or affect change. For Antifa, Trump represents the epitome of fascism, and thus his announced candidacy for election in 2024 is very likely to set off more riots by this group. The larger goal of Antifa is to end the negotiated politics where political dissent is met with intimidation and punishment. Antifa members fetishize and celebrate their violence. They, they issue uh, photographs of their violent action and they call it uh, actually riot porn. Far from creating pressure to achieve specific political reforms related to racial injustice or police violence, Antifa appears to be using its activities to further press its radical political agenda on the national stage. As Mark Levin said in his book American Marxism, clearly the Antifa movement is, a, is populated with indistinguishable soldiers dressed uniformly in black clothing and face coverings. Their identities and names are unknown. They are indoctrinated in a Marxist ide- anarchist ideology trained in violence that is said to be an idea. It's obviously more than an idea. It is a dangerous and brutal movement populated by angry zealots. Fox News commentator Tucker Carlson took it even further. He sees Antifa as a growing threat and the armed instrument militia of the permanent Democratic establishment in Washington. Their job is to mobilize when politically necessary. Now, this is a new thing in the United States, but political militia have been common in third world politics. They were a staple in Haiti. In our country, only one party has them, according to Tucker, the Democratic Party. They're the only ones with an armed militia on the street. 
Carlson believes the Antifa violence in 2020 was directly linked to the election of Joe Biden by committing extensive violence and killing to make the country so chaotic voters would want to change from Trump and they were affected. As Carlson put it, then in the moment Joe Biden was inaugurated, Antifa seemed to disappear. Nobody asked any questions about where they went, much less about who they were or who was paying them. They'd served their purpose and then they left. Now they're back, and I expect to see more of their Marxist revolutionary activities in the coming months. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. Hi, this is Bill Gertz. I wanted to talk to you briefly about my latest book. It's called Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. This is the most important book you can read to fully understand the threat posed by the Chinese Communist government. I urge you to get a copy today. It can be found at my website, The Gertz File. That's GertzFile.com or at the book site called DeceivingTheSky.com. If you enjoy listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, please consider helping Bill with his important work of educating patriots just like you about how communism is very real and even more dangerous than ever before. Your donation to the Victory Over Communism program will help expand its reach across America and throughout the world. In fact, you'll be helping to provide the kind of information that may well make its way behind the new Iron Curtain and the Great Firewall of China and inspire those living under communism to seek freedom. Supporting the Victory Over Communism program is easy. Just visit the program website, victoryovercommunism.net, and click on the link at the bottom to gofundme.com. Again, just visit victoryovercommunism.net and click on the link to gofundme.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless America. You're listening to Victory Over Communism, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. This is the counterproposal section, or the spiritual section as I call it. It is based on the teachings of the late Reverend Sun Myung Moon, who developed the divine principle as a modern-day revelation of truth that helps to better understand why communism emerged and why it runs counter to God's ideal of creation. The Antifa radicals are not simply people motivated by emotion. They are motivated by ideology, a mixture of Marxism and anarchism, which has given them great power to commit violent acts that they falsely believe are part of a greater good. The problem is that the ideology of Marxism is built on false precepts, the idea that all problems, whether fascism or inequality, derive from capitalism. Removing capitalism and replacing it with Marxism or anarchism will not solve the problems. That has been made clear in the many nations that impose communism, like China or Cuba. The root problems are much deeper than just an economic system. They can be found in the fallen nature of all humans. In the last episode, I addressed the Marxist concept of historical materialism and why it is false. 
The VOC worldview contrasts Marx's theory of history with the view of a God-affirming people that shows God ultimately governs history through his providence, a providence of restoration of all humans that began after the fall of the first human ancestors. Free will in humans was the result of God giving his entire love to humankind. God, in turn, longs for humankind to freely return that love to him. That love alone can give God joy and satisfaction. God does not want to receive love any other way, and for this reason, God created humans with total free will. Our responsibility is to understand God and freely respond to his love. I'd like to share with you a story told by the late Dr. Bohi Pak that he uses to illustrate this idea. During the Korean War, Dr. Pak spent most of his time on the front lines of combat. During one battle, there was a, a, a huge fight of a hill that was fiercely defended by enemy forces and that seemed impossible to take. The North Koreans were strongly entrenched in bunkers. They seemed absolutely committed to holding on to what they had no matter what. The United Nations forces attacked with mortars and by air, employing various tactics. Dr. Pak's company was given the mission to occupy the hill, and the fighting was terrible. Every inch up the hill was brought, bought with blood. Dr. Pak says that, when he, that he was amazed at the North Korean enemy soldiers because they just would not stop fighting. They were being hit by artillery. They were being hit by the air. They were being assaulted by infantry, but they just would not stop. They seemed determined to defend the hill. Finally, in order to conquer the hill, every single North Korean soldier had to be killed. Dr. Pak said that when he entered the bunker, he felt the, he needed to salute those men for their value. He was ready to do so when suddenly he saw something that absolutely appalled him. When he looked at the soldiers, he noticed that every single one of them had his foot chained to the concrete floor of the bunker. They were not heroes. They were slaves who had been programmed to die. It was chained patriotism. The idea here is that love must be free. Love of nation, love of parents, love of the world, love of God. It must be free. Otherwise, it's not love. It's only coercion. The reason God has been unable to achieve the full restoration of humankind is, that, is because of human failure. In creation, God takes 95% responsibility, and he delivers on his share. He then calls on humans to have faith and obedience to his truth. This is humankind's 5% responsibility. If that had been accomplished, God's ideal could have been realized. God's responsibility was fulfilled, but man's responsibility was not. Thus, the end result was a failure. In other words, God can do all kinds of things, but until humans respond to God's will, God's ideal cannot be accomplished. The VOC worldview responds to the objections of Russell Camus and other philosophers about why there's no God because there's so much suffering. Uh, why is there suffering in the world? It's because of humankind's failure to respond to God. Why does God not force man to respond? Because at that moment, humankind would no longer be human. Humans would be robots. There would be no basis for human dignity. Time and again in history, God has sent individuals to try to reach out and alleviate humankind's suffering. God has reached out, but it is up to humans to respond. 
Humankind has a responsibility in this restoration providence. The same reasoning can be applied to the course of history. Human failure began an evil history. We did not fulfill our responsibility to God. All of history since that time has been a history of restoration. God has a will to restore this world 95%, but it can only be restored when humankind responds to God. That's our 5% responsibility. Human free will and human responsibility are the key to a successful consummation of the process of restoration. The central truth of the Judeo-Christian tradition is that God loves the world and will send the Messiah to save it. God sending his son, the Christ, represents his 95% responsibility. Humans in return must receive Christ and believe in him, thus fulfilling their 5% responsibility. This is expressed in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That was in John 3.16. The word use of the word whoever, however, implies that humankind has a choice. Refusal to believe means no salvation. In a very famous passage in the Bible, it is written that a blind man came to Jesus hoping to have his sight restored. Everyone scoffed. They maintained that it was impossible to be able to heal that man. Jesus took dirt and spat on the dirt and made a paste and put it on the man's eyes and asked him to go and wash his eyes in the waters of Siloam. That's in John 9, 1 through 7. For the blind man, it was a test. He had to demonstrate his 5% responsibility, that is, his faith and obedience in the words of Jesus. If the blind man would have only a worldly viewpoint, Jesus' words would seem completely absurd. Somebody had just spit and put mud on his face. The blind man believed. He went to the waters, washed his eyes, and he could see. God does everything he can do, his 95%, but humans must respond with their 5% just as the blind man did. In the case of Exodus, the opposite occurred. God reached out, but the Israelites did not respond. When they did not respond, the times became more difficult. It's not God that fails. The point is that humans fail, and about this, God can do nothing. If God intervened, then he would violate this idea and concept of free will the very basis upon which humankind is different from all the rest of creation. Every time that humans fail to respond, there is a delay in the providential history. When can we build a God-centered, a just world? Humankind's response to God will answer that question. In conclusion, there are three steps in the process of restoring God's ideal. First, all humankind must find God not only intellectually and philosophically, but in their hearts. Second, humans must know God's will. And third, humans must show faith and obedience to God's will. All of this is the human responsibility. Without the fulfillment of these three steps, the fulfillment of the history of restoration will be impossible. God is waiting in anguish for humankind's faithful and obedient response to him. And yet most men and women are unaware of God's painful situation. We say that God proposes and man disposes. We need to come to understand and appreciate the suffering heart of God. Like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, God is suffering because of his children. He wants to give them his total love. 
In order to receive the love of God, men and women must genuinely take the position of the children of God out of their own free will. I'll be right back. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Welcome back. This is the news section, and in keeping with my focus on domestic Marxism, I'm going to continue the discussion on the apparent reemergence of Antifa, the violent Marxist anarchist movement that recently launched a series of riots in Atlanta. Let's dive a little deeper into the events in Atlanta. The violent Antifa protest began on Saturday night, January 21st, when a group of extremists took to the streets of Atlanta. They began smashing windows and set a police car on fire. The protests were carried out in response to the death of a 26-year-old protest protester three days earlier. But unlike the summer of 2020, when Antifa and Black Lives Matter caused riots that were tacitly supported by liberals in the Democratic Party, the riots in Atlanta this month were broken up by police fairly quickly. Atlanta Police Chief Darren Shirebaum disclosed later that a number of the Antifa protesters were found to be carrying explosive devices on them. It was one of these devices that was used to set the Atlanta police car on fire. Antifa called its protests a night of rage that also involved throwing bricks at the Atlanta Police Department vehicles and smashing property. In all, seven people linked to the Marxist anarchist group were arrested and police were able to restore order by 7 p.m. on the night of the 21st, but not before three businesses had been damaged. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp condemned the riots. Violence and unlawful destruction of property are not the acts of protest, he said on Twitter. They are crimes that will not be tolerated in Georgia and will be prosecuted fully. The demonstrations were set off by the death of Manuel Tehran, as I mentioned. He was shot and killed by Georgia State Patrol troopers who were trying to clear protesters that had camped out near the site of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, which the protesters had dubbed Cop City. Tehran had shot and wounded a police officer and other officers returned fire, killing him. As in the case of George Floyd in 2020, Antifa immediately sought to inflame anti-police sentiment in the aftermath by seeking to blame the police in what Marxists regard as supporters of the capitalist system they despise. Shirebaum, the police chief, said the protests began peacefully by marching in the city around 5 p.m., when at that, all of a sudden, some members began smashing property. The ATF and FBI are assisting the investigation. We already know that we have arrested actors that have already been involved in other criminal activity and are involved in a manner to deter the building of the public safety training center, he told reporters. A group called Scenes from Atlanta Forest put up a social media post Wednesday calling for retaliation. That's what set off the protest. I've looked into this group called Scenes from the Atlanta Forest, and it appears to be a radical Marxist, anarchist, anti-police, and environmental organization that is calling for violence against the unspecified regime around the nation. One post on its website calls for total war or total extinction. 
The group says there can be no means beneath us in pursuit of our own total end. We must stand ready to draw their blood wherever we find them, just as they have done to us. Let us feed our blessed land with the sacrifice of our crimson hate. When we fight against our own extinction, restraint is suicide, the group said. Opponents of the training center have been protesting for over a year by building platforms and surrounding trees and camping out at the site. They claim the $90 million project, which would be built by the Atlanta Police Foundation, involves cutting down so many trees that it would be environmentally damaging. Five of the seven people that were arrested came from out of state. One of the arrested, Francis Carroll, was out on bail for domestic terrorism and is the son of a wealthy Maine family. The Antifa riots in Atlanta coincided with similar demonstrations that took place that same Saturday night in Boston. Protesters vandalized a monument in the Boston Common and assaulted a police officer following the fatal police shooting of a university student in December of last year. The son of House Minority Whip Catherine Clark, a Democrat from Massachusetts, also was arrested during the Atlanta violence. There is an interesting China angle to one of the arrested protesters. Britain's Daily Mail reported that one of the suspects arrested on domestic terrorism charges in Atlanta is Teresa Yu Shen, 31. Shen has worked in the past for both CNN and Reuters as an intern and is the daughter of James Shen, 58, who is president and publisher of Wicon, which owns Pharma China and boasts of its links to most multinational pharma companies across China. Shen's mother is a former British Foreign Office consultant. Xiao Hua Shen was one of the first group of university scholarship students sent by, Chinese, by the Chinese government to study in Britain at Exeter University. Teresa Shen is a mental health consultant who traveled from Brooklyn to Atlanta for the protests. Others arrested included Sarah Wasilewski, 35, Spencer Liberto, Matt Maycar, along with Jeffrey Parson of Baltimore, Timothy Murphy of Maine, and Christopher Reynolds of Ohio. Shen had previously been arrested during an anti-immigration and custom enforcement demonstration in Bergen County, New Jersey, in 2021. In response to the Antifa riots, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene announced she plans to introduce legislation that would declare Antifa as a terrorist organization. I think, honestly, America is sick and tired of Antifa, Green said. Antifa is the ground troops of the Democrat Party. They never get prosecuted. That's because, well, we know the truth. It's the Democrats in control. Green said she believes Antifa needs to be taken apart and investigated to determine who the group is and who funds its violence. She correctly identified Antifa not as anti-fascist, but as fascist. Liberal media outlets have attempted to say that leftists and Marxists cannot be fascists, which is supposedly associated only with the right of the political spectrum. However, groups like Antifa carry all the hallmarks of fascists they claim to oppose. This was made clear by journalist Jonah Goldberg in his book Liberal Fascism. He reveals that the original fascists were really on the left, and that liberals from Woodrow Wilson to FDR to Hillary Clinton have advocated policies and principles remarkably similar to those of Hitler's National Socialism and Mussolini's fascism. 
Contrary to what most people think, the Nazis were ardent socialists, hence they had the term National Socialism. They believed in free health care and guaranteed jobs. They confiscated inherited wealth and spent vast sums on public education. They purged the church from public policy. They promoted a new form of pagan spirituality. And they inserted the authority of the state into every aspect of daily life. The Nazis declared war on smoking, supported abortion, euthanasia, and gun control. They loathed the free market, provided generous pensions for the elderly, and maintained a strict racial quota in their universities, where campus speech codes were all the rage. The Nazis led the world in organic farming and alternative medicine. Hitler was a strict vegetarian, and Himmler was an animal rights activist. It's hard to deny that modern progressivism and classical fascism share the same intellectual roots. We often forget, for example, that Mussolini and Hitler had many admirers in the United States. W.E.B. Du Bois, a communist, was inspired by Hitler's Germany, and Irving Berlin praised Mussolini in a song. Many fascist tenets were espoused by American progressives like John Dewey and Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and they incorporated fascist policies into the New Deal. That was FDR's New Deal. Fascism was an international movement that appeared in different forms in different countries, depending on the vagaries of national culture and tenement. In Germany, fascism appeared as a genocidal racist nationalism. In America, it took a friendlier, more liberal form. The modern heirs of this friendly fascist tradition include the New York Times, the Democratic Party, Ivy League professors, and liberals of Hollywood. The quintessential liberal fascist isn't an SS stormtrooper. It's a female grade school teacher with an education degree from Brown or Swarthmore. Former Antifa member Gabrielle Nadales told Fox's News' Jesse Waters' primetime that Antifa wants to destroy America. Nadales said Antifa's primary goals vary from group to group, but the overriding idea ideology is a dramatic hatred for American and Western ideals. The group is against both Democrats and Republicans, according to Nadales, and promotes and backs anti, any anti-American movement altogether. There is always this overarching like anti-fascism, but you have to ask yourself, what does anti-fascism mean? Nadales asked. Well, when they define it, they don't mean Nazis, they don't mean the KKK, they mean basically Western ideals as well as democracy itself. They don't like the Democratic Party, they don't like the Republican Party, they want to destroy America, he explained. Nadali said he was ostracized by Antifa for having the audacity to explore other ideas. They just called me a capitalist pig, and it was a repeated cycle of any time I tried to venture out of like this sticker-type ideology, he said. After being routinely pushed around for expressing other views, Nadali's elected to leave the group, saying he had enough. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. I spoke to you earlier about my book, Deceiving the Sky. 
I also wanted to urge you to take a look at another book that I wrote called I War, War and Peace in the Information Age. We live in an information age, and yet we're getting bombarded with enemy propaganda coming at us from all different directions. Uh, IWAR really helps expose what we need to do and how we need to counter it. I urge you to get a copy. The book can be found at iwarbook.com or at my website, thegertzfile.com. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Tom Ward. Tom is provost and professor of peace and development studies at the Unification Theological Seminary. Prior to that, he served for three years as president of UTS and previously spent 18 years as dean of the University of Bridgeport's College of Public and International Affairs, where he taught graduate courses on culture and development, peace and conflict studies, and political and economic integration. He is also one of the authors of The Causa Worldview, which is one of the key documents I have been using in presenting what I call the VOC Worldview, a critique and counterproposal to Marxism-Leninism. Tom teaches a course on on the unification worldview and society, and this can be used to assess and respond to Marxism-Leninism. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bill. My pleasure, and it's always a a pleasure to speak with you, and I I think we're all indebted to you for the incredible work that you've done throughout your career as a journalist, particularly making so clear the ways in which uh, we have been impacted by by China. So I, I thank you for all of your work and your efforts and all of your books that uh, I've had uh, the chance to read a number of. And they're just you've done excellent work. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Tell us a little bit about uh, the course you're teaching and and how that's going and uh, and what are the what are some of the key elements of, of the uh, the unification worldview, this unique perspective that uh, really challenges the uh, the Marxist-Leninist uh, ideology. Well, I can let me begin just by saying a few things about myself. Uh, I have been involved with uh, various activities of the unification movement for uh, 52 years. I first came in contact with this movement when I was a graduate student at the University of Paris back in 1971. And at that time in my life, I kind of saw uh, kind of on the one hand, the right as being repressive, unjust, misguided. And I saw the left as wanting to somehow vindicate and contribute to a better world. So I was surprised when I first encountered uh, the work of Reverend Moon, because I discovered that actually he had a very critical view of communism. That caused me to think that probably the focus of his concerns was uh, the excesses of a Stalin or a Mao or or a Pol Pot, that those were the reasons why he could point at communism and say that it was so bad. But when I met him for the first time in the spring of 1972, what most impacted me was the fact that he took the very let's say, the very metaphysical foundation of Marxism, Leninism, dialectical materialism, and he showed that 
it was unfounded that the most dynamic relationship and the essential relationship in our world is not a conflictive relationship, but it is a harmonious relationship, a reciprocal relationship that we sometimes call give and take action. And he pointed out that Marxism was based on a relationship of antagonism and a relationship that uh, that always ended in one side or the other finally being decimated. But I could see very clearly, even if you look at Marxism, like proton, electron, in in the writing of of Leninism, these are these are presented as being contradictory and in conflict. But he made it so clear that basically, beginning with beginning with atomic particles, and you know there there is this reciprocal relationship, not a conflicting one, which is responsible for the ways in which things exist. So I approach. Uh, in this course, Marxism from the viewpoint of its foundations, whether we speak about uh, its metaphysics, its labor theory of value, its view of history, it's very easy to show um, that it's unfounded. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty clear. I had the same uh, response, too, that when you really look closely at the ideas and, you know, the Ide- the ideology of Marxism and Marxism-Leninism is never going to solve the problems of humanity by ending the capitalist system. And, we, and we've kind of seen that where communism has been in power, whether it's the Soviet Union or today China, which, again, is, you know, having its own – forcing its own Marxism-Leninism uh, and, and is kind of expanding around the world. Um, how, um, how, how do we reach – uh, young people with this message. I think that uh, a lot of the Marxist ideas or quasi-Marxist ideas have really been promoted over the last 30 to 40 years. From your teaching experience, how do you see students uh, addressing this issue? Do, you, do, they, do they respond to it? Well, let's say this. First of all, I think that we have, there are two there are two influences that uh, that we face. The one is the Marxist influence, and the other is the deep secular foundations of modern America. Unfortunately, uh, we go back to John Dewey, Carl Rogers, and uh, ultimately all the way back to Darwin. And what, what we found find is that there has been a systematic effort to say that there's not a God, that the Ten Commandments are uh, our ideas, they're, they're, not, they're not principles they're, that anyone needs to guide their lives by. This whole process has undermined, if you will, the, the religious dimension of America's foundations. So that has kind of created a, a situation so that uh, what we believed in uh, isn't there. And so Marxism comes along and has a certain amount of appeal to people. And then on top of that, you also have this this other area, which is called critical theory. I don't know if you're familiar with the book um, by uh, I think it's um, Helen uh, Pluckenhaus, I believe her her book. It's called Cynical Theories, but it's an amazing text because it it basically shows the ways in which you know this effort is underway to cancel culture, if you will, in every mm-hmm. single in every single way. But what's what's interesting, it's it's James, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckenhaus, the, the, the authors of the book. Both of them uh, are what would pro- what one would probably say these are these are liberal 
liberal Americans, if you will, who share a lot of the progressive ideas that come from Dewey. And suddenly they find themselves shocked when they see that this whole other level of approach to things has come and that and that even the, the type of free inquiry that they supported, it's being assaulted. And suddenly we find a place where there's not even any room for speech, you know, free speech anymore or free thought. So that 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 is deeply disturbing because uh, America had a certain kind of a foundation and an ability to distinguish right and wrong based upon values that were affirmed by America's founders, that were affirmed by Dr. Martin Luther King, that were affirmed by so many key figures in the history of this country. And those values essentially were associated with the whole Judeo-Christian tradition. And that that has disappeared. And so uh, we find ourselves in a situation where America is confused. We are kind of attacking and fighting each other. And in the meantime, as you pointed out so much in your in your own writings, China has become extremely powerful. You know, the reality is that uh, even at, at the at the very high point of the uh, of the Cold War, the Soviet Union had an economy one twelfth the size of the economy of the United States. China has an economy which is virtually the same size as the U.S. And they have the ability both to make their way forward economically and militarily and diplomatically in order to become the force for the future. And uh, it's very disturbing when I um, when I read the speeches of Xi Jinping and I've, I've read a lot of his speeches. Uh, this is a person who literally who takes who takes Marxism literally. And in his in his speeches, you find that he advocates for every dimension of Marxism. And it, it's it's astounding that he's doing this and getting away with it. And I think part of the way that we have to reach the American people as a whole, and we have to also uh, reach our young people, is we have to expose Marxist theory. Xi Jinping has not come up with a clever new Marxism. He's simply doing nothing more than kind of rehashing what uh, we know has 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 no le legitimacy. And yet he's out there and he's been he's been pushing this. So I think we have to expose him. We have to expose him with his words. He's he said some things that, frankly, if if uh, we were able to um, to challenge those things in the way that, uh, as you know, um, Reverend Moon and the Khausa movement and you yourself uh, challenge challenge communism, uh, uh, Soviet communism, uh, then he, he would be forced to retreat. And I think I think that the time has come where we have to do that. We have to take on his ideas. And I, I confess that I was, I think, like a lot of people, kind of a panda hugger. I was I did have a naive view about China and where China was going, but I don't feel that way anymore. And uh, I, it's we we China's headed in a way which is not good for the future of humanity. And that's exactly the point of this uh, podcast. We've been talking with uh, Tom Ward. He's provost and professor of peace and development studies at the Unification Theological Seminary. Uh, Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thanks so much, Bill. And thanks for all you do. That's it for this episode of Victory Over Communism. 
I look forward to having you listen in in the next episode coming up. Thanks for listening to Victory Over Communism with award-winning national security journalist Bill Gertz, the only program in the free world unafraid to pull back the curtain of communism to reveal how the Communist Party of China and even America's own brand of Marxism pose real threats to freedom and democracy in America and the world today. See you next time on Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz.